generally, this letter of Philippians was thought to be written, I'm going to go back into my RE teacher kind of mode here, thought to be written in about the kind of mid-50s, the early 60s AD, about 30 years after Jesus' death. And it's one of Paul's first letters that he wrote to the first communities that were established. The letter itself was sent from Paul and from Timothy by this man called Epaphroditus, who's talked about in the letter. Uh, and this man, Epaphroditus, he was a member of the Philippian church who brought the, a financial gift that's talked about in the, in the letter um, from the church to Paul as he was imprisoned. From Paul and Timothy, slaves of King Jesus, to all God's holy ones in King Jesus who are in Philippi, together with the overseers and ministers. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and King Jesus the Lord. I thank my God every time I think of you. I always pray with joy whenever I pray for you all because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Of this I am convinced. The one who began a good work in you will thoroughly complete it by the day of King Jesus. It is right for me to think this way about all of you. You have me in your heart, here in prison as I am, working to defend and bolster up the gospel. You are my partners in grace, all of you. Yes, God can bear witness how much I'm longing for all of you with the deep love of King Jesus. And this is what I'm praying, that your love may overflow still more and more in knowledge and in all astute wisdom. Then you will be able to tell the difference between good and evil and be sincere and faultless on the day of the Messiah, filled to overflowing with the fruit of right living, fruit that comes through King Jesus to God's glory and praise. Now, my dear family, I want you to know that the things I've been through have actually helped the gospel on its way. You see, everybody in the Imperial Guard, in the Imperial Guard, all the rest of and all the rest for that matter, have heard that I am here, chained up because of the Messiah, my King. My imprisonment has given new confidence to most of the Lord's family. They are now much more prepared to speak the word boldly and fearlessly. There are some, I should say who are proclaiming the king because of envy and rivalry. But there are others who are doing it out of goodwill. These last are acting from love, since they know that I'm in prison because of defending the gospel. But the others are announcing the king out of selfishness and jealousy. They are not acting from pure motives. They imagine that they will make my, more trouble for me in my captivity. So what? Only this, the king is being announced, whether people mean it or not, and I am happy to celebrate that. Yes, and I really am going to celebrate, because I know that this will result in my rescue, through your prayer and the support of the Spirit of King Jesus. I am waiting eagerly and full of hope, because nothing is going to put me to shame. I am going to be bold and outspoken, now as always. And the king is going to gain a great reputation through my body, whether in life or in death. You see, for me to live means the Messiah. To die means to make a profit. If it's to be living on in the flesh, that means fruitful work for me. Actually, I, 
I don't know which I would choose. I'm pulled both ways at once. I would really love to leave all of this and be with the king because that would be far better. But staying on here in the flesh, it is more vital for your sake. Since I've become convinced of this, I know that I will remain here and stay alongside all of you to help you to advance and rejoice in your faith so that the pride you take in King Jesus may overflow because of me when I come to visit you once again. The one thing I would stress is this. Your public behavior must match up to the gospel of the king. That way, whether I do come and see you or whether I remain elsewhere, the news that I get about you will indicate that you are standing firm with a single spirit, struggling side by side with one united intent for the faith of the gospel and not letting your opponents intimidate you in any way. This is a sign from God, one that signifies their destruction, but your salvation. Yes, God has granted you that. On behalf of the king, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. You are engaged in the same struggle which you once watched me go through. And as you now hear, I am still going through it. So, if our shared life in the king brings you any comfort if love still has the power to make you cheerful, if we really do have a partnership in the Spirit, if your hearts are at all moved with affection and sympathy, then make my joy complete. Bring your thinking into line with one another. Here's how to do it. Hold on to the same love. Bring your innermost lives into harmony. Fix your minds on the same object. Never act out of selfish ambition or vanity. Instead, regard everybody else as your superior. Look after each other's best interests, not your own. This is how you should think among yourselves, with the mind that you have because you belong to the Messiah Jesus, who though in God's form did not regard his equality with God as something he ought to exploit, Instead, he emptied himself and received the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of, human, of humans. And then, having human appearance, he humbled himself, became obedient, even to death. Yes, even to the death of the cross. And so God has greatly exalted him, and to him in his favor has given the name which is over all names, that now at the name of Jesus every knee within heaven shall bow, and on earth too, and under the earth. And every tongue shall confess that Jesus, Messiah, is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So, my dear people, you always did what I said. So please now carry on in the same way, not just as though I was there with you, but much more because I am not. Your task now is to work at bringing about your own salvation. And naturally, you'll be taking this with utter seriousness. After all, God himself is the one who's at work among you, who provides both the will and the energy to enable you to do what pleases him. There must be no grumbling and disputing in anything you do. That way nobody will be able to fault you, and you'll be pure and spotless children of God in the middle of a twisted and depraved generation. 
You are to shine among them like lights in the world, clinging on to the word of life. That's what I will be proud of on the day of the Messiah. It will prove that I didn't run a useless race or work to no purpose. Yes, even if I am to be poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I shall celebrate and celebrate jointly with you all. In the same way you should celebrate, yes, and celebrate with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I in turn may be encouraged by getting news about you. I have nobody else of his quality. He will care quite genuinely about how you are. Everybody else you see looks after their own interests, not those of Jesus the Messiah. But you know how Timothy has proved himself. Like a child with a father, he has worked as a slave alongside me for the sake of the gospel. So I'm hoping to send him just as soon as I see how it will turn out with me. And I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come very soon as well. But I did think it was necessary to send Epaphroditus to you. He is my brother. He has worked alongside me and fought alongside me, and he served as your agent in tending to my needs. He was longing for you all, you see, and he was upset because you heard that he was sick. And he really was sick too. He nearly died. But God took pity on him. Yes, and on me as well, so that I wouldn't have one sorrow piled on top of another. This has made me all the more eager to send him, so that you'll see him again and be glad, and my own anxieties will be laid to rest. So give him a wonderfully happy welcome in the Lord, and help and hold people like him in special respect. He came close to death through risking his life for the king's work, so that he could complete the service to me that you hadn't been able to perform. So then, my dear family... It comes down to this, celebrate in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you, and it's safe for you. Watch out for the dogs. Watch out for the bad works people. Watch out for the incision party, that is, the mutilators. We are the circumcision, you see. We who worship God by the Spirit and boast in King Jesus and refuse to trust in the flesh. Mind you, I've got good reason to trust in the flesh. If anyone else thinks they they have reason to trust in the flesh, I've got more. Circumcised on the eighth day. Race, Israelite. Tribe, Benjamin. Descent, Hebrew through and through. Torah observance, a Pharisee. Zealous, I persecuted the church. Official status under the law, Blameless. Does that sound as though my account was well in credit? Well, maybe. But whatever I had written in on the prophet's side, I calculated it instead as loss. Because of the Messiah. Yes, I I know that's weird. But there's more. I calculate everything as loss. Because knowing King Jesus as my Lord is worth far more than everything else put together. In fact, because of the Messiah, I've suffered the loss of everything, and I now calculate it as trash, so that my prophet may be the Messiah, 
and that I may be discovered in him, not having my own covenant status defined by Torah, but the status which comes through the Messiah's faithfulness, the covenant status from God which is given to faith. This means knowing him, knowing the power of his resurrection and knowing the partnership of his sufferings. It means sharing the form and pattern of his death so that somehow I may arrive at the final resurrection from the dead. I am not implying that I've already received resurrection or that I've already become complete and mature. No, I am hurrying on, eager to overtake it because King Jesus has overtaken me. My dear family, I don't reckon that I have yet overtaken it, but this is my one aim to forget everything that's behind and to strain every nerve to go after what's ahead. I mean to chase on towards the, towards the finishing post where the prize waiting for me is the upward call of God in King Jesus. Those of us who are mature should think like this. If you think differently about it, God will reveal this to you as well. Only let's be sure to keep in line with the position we have reached. So, my dear family, I want you all together to watch what I do and copy me. You've got us as a pattern of behavior. Pay careful attention to people who follow it. You see, there are several people who behave as enemies of the cross of the Messiah. I told you about them often enough. And now I'm weeping as I say it again. They are on the road to destruction. Their stomach is their God, and they find glory in their shame. All they ever think about is what's on the earth. But we are citizens of heaven, you see. And we're eagerly waiting for the Savior, the Lord, King Jesus, who is going to come from there. Our present body is a shabby old thing, but he's going to transform it so that it's just like his glorious body. And he's going to do this by the power which makes him able to bring everything into line under his authority. Well then, my dear family, I miss you so much. You are my joy and my crown. This is how you must stand firm in the Lord, my beloved people. I have a special appeal which goes, to, which goes jointly to Yodia and Syntyche. Please, please come to a common mind in the Lord. And here's a request for you too, my loyal comrade. Please help these women. They have struggled hard in the gospel alongside me, as have Clement and my other fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Celebrate joyfully in the Lord all the time. I'll say it again, celebrate. Let everybody know how gentle and gracious you are. The Lord is near. Don't worry about anything. Rather, in every area of life, let God know what you want as you pray and make requests and give thanks as well. And God's peace, which is greater than we can ever understand, will keep guard over your hearts and minds in King Jesus. For the rest, my dear family, these are the things you should think through. Whatever is true, 
whatever is holy, whatever is upright, whatever is pure, whatever is attractive, whatever has a good reputation, anything virtuous, anything praiseworthy. And these are the things you should do. What you learned, received, heard and saw in and through me. And the God of peace will be with you. I have been having a great celebration in the Lord because your concern for me has once again burst into flower. You were, of course, concerned for me before, but you didn't have an opportunity to show it. I'm not talking about lacking anything. I've learned to be content with what I have. I know how to do without, and I know how to cope with plenty. In every possible situation, I've learned the hidden secret of being full and hungry, of having plenty and having and going without. And it is this. I have strength for everything in the one who gives me power. But you did the right thing by entering the partnership with me in my suffering. Indeed, as you people in Philippi know well, when the gospel was getting underway and I was moving on from Macedonia, there wasn't a single other church except yourselves that entered into a two-way partnership with me, giving and receiving. Yes, when I was in Thessalonica, you sent help to me, not just once, but twice. I stress that it isn't the gift I'm interested in. My concern is that you should have a healthy profit balance showing up on your account. For myself, I've received full payment, and I am well stocked up. In fact, I'm full to overflowing, now that I have received from Epaphroditus what you sent. It's like a sacrifice, with a beautiful smell, a worthy offering, giving pleasure to God. What's more, my God will meet all your needs too out of his store of glorious riches in King Jesus. Glory be to our God and Father forever and ever. Amen. Give my greetings to all God's people in King Jesus. The family with me here send their greetings. All God's people send you greetings, especially those from Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus the Messiah, be with your spirit. Amen. Let's hear it for Epaphroditus. Stroke Ross. So, we know from... um, some historical sources that very few people would have been able to read or write at the time of Paul. And so the spoken tradition of reading a letter aloud to the recipients would have been a very important part of their understanding. Uh, The letter deliverer, as we said, was Epaphroditus, and he would have then answered any questions that those first hearers would have had after the hearing of the letter. No doubt the young church would have read and reread and listened again and again to the contents of the letter in anticipation of Paul and Timothy's promised arrival, where they would then get to speak to them personally about it. Paul writes that he was in prison and the church in Philippi had sent him 
in the form of provision of a financial gift that would have allowed him to feed himself. Um, prison in those days wasn't like prison today. The, you weren't fed when you were kept in prison and so your friends had to come along and, and feed you. And so the gift from the Philippian church went to Paul so he could feed himself. Paul writes of this sense of partnership with the Philippian church. Um, the word koinonia, which you may have heard before, is this uh, word that is used to describe this partnership. It's kind of like a sense of family or a sense of a shared project that they had together, a shared aim, a bit like comrades. The word comrades would kind of sum it up for us. Um, In the ancient world, this word koinonia would have very often been used in business dealings, people, two parties who were committed to a joint venture together. And so Paul is in this joint venture with the Philippian community. In Paul's case, Uh, This venture is the sharing of the good news uh, that the crucified and risen Jesus is in fact the Lord of the world. Indeed, that there is a new king who is king over Caesar and whom Paul and these new Christians offered their allegiance to instead of to Caesar, which obviously led to friction and to persecution. See, Philippi uh, was an official Roman colony, which meant that all the inhabitants of Philippi would have been granted Roman citizenship. And this Roman colony would have comprised of quite a diverse bunch of people. There would have been a small percentage of the Roman elite. Then there was the general populace who would have been kind of at the edge of poverty, if not in poverty itself. And then there was probably up to about 50% slaves in this city. So it was a diverse city. It was a a colony of Rome. And Paul urges this young Philippian community to live as a united family in this diverse city. They are to be a colony of Christ, a colony of heaven, situated, as it were, in this Roman colony of Philippi. Paul emphasizes that um, this Christian community should consider themselves as a united community and this would be a sign um, that Jesus is Lord of the world to the onlooking world who were watching. They were to be united across different social, traditional or traditional social and cultural divides to be one family. Throughout this letter, then there are different themes of celebration and joy through the crucified Messiah. And this joy looks very different or looks quite different to what we might describe as joy today. You know, there's this theme of suffering and celebration throughout the letter. Suffering because the community and Paul were finding itself swimming against the tide of the Roman world around it. And then celebrating because this new community has discovered that the world is being reborn through the person, the life, and the lordship of Jesus, the Messiah. There's a couple of passages in this letter that function as the center of it. And from those passages, the rest of the letter kind of flows. And we're going to be looking um, as the weeks unfold at these different areas of the, of the letter, these different passages within the letter. One of them is the great Christ poem in chapter 2, which Ross read so well for us there. It's the beautiful center of this letter. And it seems that as the letter unfolds, Paul is using this Christ poem to kind of undergird and illuminate um, the rest of what he wants to say to this community. 
Throughout this letter, uh, and on either side of this Christ poem, there are appeals to right living or holiness. Uh, Paul exhorts this community to be a united community, but he also exhorts them to be a holy community in the face of the Roman world around it. We can imagine, probably, can we, that it's kind of easy to do one or the other. It's kind of easy to be a united community, to all be together um, if there's nothing very much asked of us. And then we can probably also imagine that we can set up kind of strict moral boundaries and guidelines and enforce those, but then unity is going to be impossible. So Paul kind of asks for both from this Philippian community. He asks for unity, but he also asks for holiness. And perhaps we need to discover, rediscover, in fact, what that, that living out of the reality of a holiness of life as God intends actually leads us to being genuinely fully human, a fully human person in the way that God intended. Holiness in God's eyes, in God's plan, is actually liberation for the human being. It allows us to be fully human and to thrive, freed from the constraints of all that the culture around us says about how we should live in the world and actually rooted in the reality and the presence of Jesus instead. You see, for this colony of Christ in the world, or for the colony of Christ in the world as we are a colony of Christ in the world, it's true to say that our way of life matters, that how we conduct ourselves matters, that what we do with our bodies matters, that what we think, how we think matters, that our way of being in the world actually matters. And yet it's kind of easy to imagine, it's easy to be together when there are no asks about how we are to live in the world. But we can also say that the converse is true, as I said. I don't need to repeat that. But here we have it. Paul calls this young Philippian community to both holiness and unity. And excuse my overgeneralization in this, but for us as a church, uh, and then in the days that we live in, we can kind of imagine that where there are some folks who might be more progressive in their persuasion and might care about particular causes of justice in today's world, as they well should, then there are also those who are perhaps of a more conservative persuasion, on the other hand, who maybe care more about right ethical behaviour and taking a stand for what they believe to be like the morally right position on a particular, um, a particular controversy. And perhaps you can see that this might be the real challenge of today's church and indeed for, for us perhaps. And so this letter maybe has great relevance for us today as we discern our way in the world as a colony of Christ in Belfast today. Paul also prays in this opening section of the letter in chapter 1 that he desires that their love would abound more and more. In fact, he says that he wishes that their love would overflow. And just as Paul says that unity and holiness go together, he also says that in his vision of the Jesus-centered community, that love and wisdom go together. So these early Christians had to discern that there was a way of life that was quite different to the way of life of the people around them. And they were to have wisdom to be able to discern 
how to live in this way that was different from the world around them. Why was this? Well, Paul says in chapter 1, he says that they needed to discern between good and evil so that on the day of the Messiah, the day of the Messiah was the day when Christ would return. So Christ came the first time, as we know, and his life, his death, his resurrection formed the first part of the unfolding plan of God in the world. But there is this hope that Christ will come again, and we live in the intervening period before Christ will come again and return and set all things right. So Paul talks about this day of the Messiah that this, church, these young, this young church was to live with in their mind. And he says that they needed to discern between good and evil so that they would be found overflowing with the fruit of right living, a reflection of the divine love into the world around them, the fruit of right living. So this wisdom that Paul writes about might be called having the mind of the Messiah. And he talks about this throughout the letter. There's a new way of thinking that Paul writes about at a number of times in the letter. It's a reordering of the way that we think about things from top to bottom. Coming from this is a reordering of the way we think centered in Christ. And we discover wisdom about living in the world as a different kind of community. To the culture around us. <clears throat> so I'm going to finish up now. This is just kind of an introduction to the letter today. We read the letter in its entirety just to set the series up as a little bit of an experiment this morning. Uh, so I'm not going to speak for very long myself. You'd be glad to know. But um, Gordon Fee, who is a New Testament scholar, he, in his um, large tome that we got a hold of as we were preparing um, for this series, he, he describes Philippians 1, 27 to 30, which I think I'll have up on the screen here. He describes Philippians 1, 27 to 30 as like in capsule form, as a condensed form, the kind of crux of what Paul is trying to do with his letter to the Philippians. Let's read it together. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightening anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of the destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. And this section of the letter, Philippians 1, 27 to 30, we have Paul's first command to the Philippian church. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Another way of saying this, another way of translating this would be live as citizens of the gospel of the king. And I should have a slide up with that. This is really the crux of the letter. If we could summarize Philippians up into a single statement, this would be it. Live as citizens of the gospel of the king. We have to imagine what this letter would have meant for those listening in the first century in the first century church, Paul talked about living in a manner worthy of the gospel. He called Jesus king. He talked about Jesus being Lord in a Roman colony 
where they were all Roman citizens in this church and Nero, who was the Caesar of the day, and Nero's reputation kind of goes before him as being a complete horror to the early Christians. Paul was turning up the heat in writing this letter as he did. We might imagine that those early first listeners were squirming in their seats as they heard some of the language that Paul was using, maybe looking for the exits in the room in Lydia's house, perhaps, who knows. He used the word gospel a couple of times in this Philippians 1, 27 to 30. Evangelion, the word that we've used, the Greek word that we've talked about here before to describe the gospel. This term, Evangelion, was no stranger to the Roman citizens because they would have used this term, Evangelion, when thinking about the mission and gospel of the Roman Empire. This Roman Empire, the superpower of the day, which ruled from England all the way over to India, this vast empire, It lived under the gospel, the Evangelion of Pax Romana, which was like a peace by the edge of the sword. And they lived under the cry of Nero, Caesar is Lord. This gospel, the gospel to them, to the Roman citizens, was a gospel of a royal announcement of a king coming to power. And they would have used it commonly when talking about Nero, about Caesar. So Paul uses it in this completely contrary way, talking about the gospel of King Jesus. We gotta imagine these were inflammatory words to those early hearers of the gospel. You can imagine the subversive power that this letter would have had in the hands of its recipients. They wouldn't have wanted it getting into the wrong hands, perhaps. And as we finish this morning, we're going to wrap up now. Paul writes to this emerging colony of Christ in the midst of this Roman colony in the city of Philippi. As he writes to them, he encourages them uh, thus. He says, it's not Pax Romana with the shout of Caesar is Lord. It's grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He exhorts those early believers to have one mind, to stand firm in one spirit. He exhorts them to live with unity and holiness, with love and wisdom. He exhorts them, in short, to live as citizens of the gospel of the King. And so should we, Redeemer. We should live as citizens of the gospel of King. We should live in unity and holiness. We should live with love and with wisdom. We should have one mind. We should stand firm in one spirit. 